0: Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today's guest is from Chicago and has been a part of the leather community for over 20 years. He holds the title of Cell Block Sheldon Chicago Leatherman 2004 and is the producer and host of Inside Leather History, a Fireside Chat. Just a friendly reminder for those just tuning in, this podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. With that said, let's sit back, relax, and get ready for some more leather talk. Well, hello, everybody. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. And today we have Doug. Hi, Doug.
1: Hi, Brandon. How's it going? I'm great. How are you?
0: Pretty good. Is it cold over there in Chicago?
1: Yes, we had snow today.
0: Oh, perfect. I went to the beach yesterday, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, good for you. We
0: have to come to LA sometime. Um, Doug, for, for those of us who might not be familiar with you, would you mind giving us a little snapshot of who you are?
1: Well, my name is Douglas O'Keefe um, I'm 54 going on 55 years old and I'm a gay man living in Chicago. And I guess I've been in the community more than 20 years. Okay. Um, my previous title really, it's very simple. I was the, uh, Cellblock Sheldon Chicago Leatherman 2004 for the Cellblock bar here in Chicago. And I am the producer and host of Inside Leather History a Fireside Chat.
0: All right, awesome. Well, uh, that's actually kind of how we got connected, isn't it? Your Fireside Chats. Um, Yes. If I remember correctly, you reached out to me through Facebook. Um, Did you, had you found my podcast through some other forum or through some other platforms or how did that?
1: I believe it was coming up on Facebook feeds or something like that. And I thought, well, this is someone I really ought to meet. Uh, any of us that are doing this kind of work in the community, I think we ought to all be acquainted at the very least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be honest, I had no idea that your fireside chats existed until you reached out to me. So <laughs> thank you for that. I watched a, a few of them. Uh, one with Scarlet Sin, uh, one with Guy, oh, a couple I think you had with Guy Baldwin, actually. His was
1: a two-parter. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Really, really cool stuff. Um, and we'll definitely get into more of Fireside Chats. Um, pick your brain a little bit about that. Uh, but let's start with a little bit of an origin story. I always like to start off with that. Okay. I do want to know, I mean, you consider yourself a gay man. When did you figure out that you were gay?
1: Well, I probably pinpointed that when I was in my very early teens. Prior to that, I just thought I was different. Mm-hmm. But in my early teens, I began realizing that I was attracted to other men, men that were older than me. But when you're 14, you know, older a 20 is year...
0: like anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, a 20 year old person is an older man to you. Right. But uh, that's basically how that came along. And then uh, as time went on, I developed into a better understanding of all of that.
0: Do you remember your first sexual experience? Was that with a man or a woman?
1: It was with a, I'm gonna say a boy. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Because he really wasn't a man. Um, I was in college back in the way old days and I had a best friend who was a woman. She had a supposed boyfriend Oh, this is dirty. Oh, it's a little bit dirty. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, She'll probably smack me for telling this story. um, She was dating this guy who was using her as cover. This guy was out doing all the bars at that time in the, well, as I said, a long time ago. And uh, next thing I knew, he was coming on to me. So that led, one thing led to the other, and then he and I uh, did the dirty deed one night.
0: Oh my, okay, (laughs) you can't just leave it there. (laughs) What's this dirty deed? Like, what what was dirty then?
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh boy. Well, you know, it was in those days when it's the first time you've ever done anything. What do you really know about sex at that point? Right, right. It it ended up where I sucked him off and uh, basically just sort of made out. Jerked off, that kind of thing. It didn't get really super dirty. Although it left me feeling very sort of, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> you know?
0: Oh, wow. So, so that was the <laughs> first like gay sexual experience. Was your heart just like beating out of your chest?
1: Ab- absolutely. It was my first sexual experience at all.
0: Oh, my God. Wow. Yes.
1: Yes. And I was in college at the time.
0: Can I ask the question? We're all waiting. We all want to know. Um, spit or swallow, dog?
1: <laughs> <laughs> At that time, I spit.
0: Okay, got it.
1: <laughs> Remember, I was a newbie.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, cool. Well, I mean, did you ever have to come out to your family about being homosexual? Or how did that whole thing come down?
1: Well, I was fortunate, I think. My uh, parents figured out very early on that I was gay. They never said anything. They didn't really care, but they had figured it out. And it wasn't until I was a lot older that I finally came out and said I'm gay. And the reason that that finally really presented itself was because, um, I, I can't recall exactly when, but... I went to a gay pride uh, parade and, uh, like, street fair in about 1995, I guess, and photos were taken by local reporters, and my photo ended up in the newspaper, and my dad found it.
0: And you couldn't just be like, oh, I'm an ally or anything. You're just like... No,
1: no. (laughs) point, At that point, I just simply said, yeah, I'm gay.
0: Oh, wow. I'm
1: openly gay. And they went, yeah, hello, ding-dong, we know
0: Oh, wow.
1: So, yeah.
0: I mean, you're kind of lucky in that regard, but...
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: How funny. So your parents knew and they just didn't say anything about it?
1: No, my mom My mom actually said, we knew that you'd say something when you were ready.
0: Oh, that's sweet.
1: Yes, I was very fortunate.
0: Now, do you... I mean, do you currently now have any kind of partner or like life partner?
1: No, no. I've been fully single for about six years.
0: Okay. And how about your friends? Did they all know that you were gay at the time or did you have a coming out with them?
1: I think that they, many of them knew at college. I I believe they had figured it out. But when I formally came out and this was the biggest news, you know, that I had to share with anyone, uh, at least a couple of them said that at the time I seemed to be walking around with a little pink cloud (laughs) <laughs> yes and again these were wonderful people who just didn't care as long as i was happy doing whatever i was doing then they were good with it yeah i was very fortunate
0: that's really awesome it's just so funny like <laughs> well no we'll get into my stories later <laughs> <laughs> i just remember there was a girl who was totally into me in, in college I since we're talking about college um And this was before I had come out, and I had just bottomed for, like, the first time. And she looks at me as I'm walking to class. She's like, why are you walking funny? And I was like, (laughs) I am not walking funny. (laughs) I was so embarrassed.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh,
0: So now we kind of know you know you're coming out and and how that all went down how what about leather i mean when did that come into play
1: that was a little later for me i did sort of the mainstream gay for a while i i had a boyfriend at uh, college Mm -hmm. not the one not the one with whom i experimented the first time but one that i met a little later uh then i went to live overseas for about five years in that time Again, I was just a normal gay person. Okay. And had a boyfriend overseas. I was living in Japan.
0: Wait, hold on. What took you to Japan?
1: Well, right out of college, I got a job teaching English. Mm, Okay. So I went to teach English, and then that led to a real job. And I ended up living in Japan for five years. So. In Japan is really where I was an out gay man in the gay community. And I've got to tell you that the Japanese gay community is totally different from anything you'd know here in the U.S. I was
0: just thinking about that. Like, <clears throat> what was the dynamic like over there?
1: Well, a lot of the men in Japan are, in some cases, forced into uh, marriages to produce a son, children, and for cover.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they play around on the side. Now, of course there are fully open, uh, gay men who, you know, live an openly gay lifestyle. But I'm also speaking of a Japanese experience that I knew more than 30 years ago. So how it is now could be a bit different, mm-hmm. but I got involved there with an organization called, uh, international friends. And that was for international men and local Japanese men to mingle. And it met, one, met once a month. I ended up becoming sort of what we called the cruise director because I, I would have like a game planned every week, that every, every, rather every month that we met. And I was always sort of the one that would go around and introduce myself to all the new people who arrived and tried to make them feel welcome. And, okay. and I had a Japanese boyfriend there. Uh, It was a wonderful experience. I have no regrets. But when I left, it was very difficult for uh, my boyfriend. And uh, we stayed friends for a while, but I haven't now heard from him in many years. So that's a shame. But the leather community came up after all of that. I was trying to figure out myself when I was back in the States and after a few other things and Was finally told one day, well, the kind of men you're depicting really are in the more leather
0: world. Ah, because going you said originally, I'm attracted to like older men. At the time when you were a kid,
1: yes, was older.
0: But I see. Okay, so what what do what do you mean? The men that you were depicting were you like what what were you attracted to at that point?
1: Well, men that had body hair. Okay, Um, men that acted like men who who weren't caught up in being pretty who were not caught up in being the a-list gays i guess i i don't want to give you the wrong impression but i was in, i was attracted to people that had a little more of an edge i think
0: yeah i mean and especially during like the the 90s i mean the the gay scene was like very um polished, I guess you could say, like shaved and clean and slick. And it wasn't, I I can see where you're getting at. Okay.
1: So I went to a bar in Cleveland, Ohio, which is my hometown. And I went to a Sunday afternoon beer bust. Okay. That changed everything. Hmm. Suddenly I knew where I needed to be. And that's really when the leather journey began.
0: Wow. Yeah. What brought you to that bar in the first place?
1: Well, as I mentioned, someone I knew at the time said, that's a place you really need to explore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know how I knew, but somehow or another, I knew that they were doing a Sunday afternoon event, a beer bust, and it was a beautiful day. So I went and i i knew that that's where i belonged
0: now what i mean do you remember any particular moments that day that made you like just clicked everything in place for you or was it just like the whole the whole thing
1: <laughs> well the music was amazing i remember that because they were playing disco okay <laughs> and i immediately knew this was fantastic, and the men were welcoming, they were mm-hmm. friendly, so I immediately felt comfortable.
0: I mean, had you not experienced that at other EA bars, like the friendliness and the welcomeness?
1: Uh, minimally, I would say. I guess it depended. Um, so, A lot of the bars, I remember, at that time were still a lot of dance clubs. Okay. And you didn't go there, really, for a lot of socialization. You went there to boogie, and... So that's where I had been for a lot of that time. And actually going to a bar and interacting with people and becoming friendly with people, that was really the first time I did that.
0: Now, when did you get your first piece of leather? Did you wear it out to the bar?
1: Not that time, no. That again came a little later. I had been uh, in a relationship with someone who gave me my very first vest. Now, it was not... A traditional, like a bar vest. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like a fashion leather type of a vest. But nonetheless, it was something that worked in that situation. And that was something I began wearing after that relationship ended and I was going out to these other, to these leather bars. And from there is where a lot of it began to grow.
0: That's really special, though, that your first piece of leather was given to you by somebody that you cared about. That's
1: true. Yes, that's true.
0: Do you yeah. still have that vest? I still do. Oh, really?
1: Yes. it It no longer fits um, okay. physically. I've I've changed a lot since then, but I still have it.
0: That's really sweet. Do you ever like look back at that time? Like look back at your vest and get nostalgia for the times?
1: I would say I get nostalgia for the man who gave it to me. Mm. I he was very special, someone I loved with all my heart, but uh, is gone now. So. Mm. I, that's what I think when I look at that vest.
0: That's really special. Yes. So going, you know, further into like the leather scene, I mean, did it, when did it become kinky for you? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: A job that I got um, uh, shortly after coming out into the scene uh, got me to move to Detroit And it was at Detroit going to a leather bar there that I began meeting people that were into different things and uh, experienced different sexualities and things with them that uh, opened up that door for me.
0: Do you remember your first kink experience?
1: Well, I'm not sure really whether it was kink compared to a lot of other people, but it uh, was, for example, sex in a car. Okay. Um... And then uh, I'm trying to think if it really counts as being kinky.
0: I think, okay, let's define kinky as anything beyond the norm of, of, (laughs) okay, well, I guess if we're going to say that just being gay itself is kinky, but okay, like, Mm. you know, okay, I think sex in a car counts.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, but it was also the first time I went to like a sex party at somebody's home. Oh, wow and experienced uh, sex that was not really s- nice and sweet in a bed, mm-hmm. but sex sex that happened standing up in a corner, whatever else, things like that. That was uh, probably the first time I experienced that level of sexuality.
0: And I think, I mean, <clears throat> I can speak for myself and, and maybe for a few others who can differentiate that kind of... Um, like I, I'm okay, I have a, a long term partner. And mm-hmm. I would say that sex with my partner is different than the kinky sex that I have in like a leather space. One for me is more romantic. The other is very primal. Would you say that's also the case for yourself? Or how would you define that?
1: Well, definitely what I was experiencing at that time was more primal. And certainly what I experience now uh, fits into that uh, category. But... I, I have not had a long-term romantic partner in a long time. Mm. So I have difficulty really drawing any kind of differentiation there. Okay. I don't know if that makes any sense.
0: No, that makes sense. I mean, your experience, you can only speak to your own experience, and you haven't had that kind of relationship in a while. So now, as you came you know, further into the leather scene, did you have any mentors or anybody that kind of helped guide you
1: yes i was very fortunate uh my mentor my very first true leather mentor here in chicago was the late chuck windemuth chuck windemuth was a wonderful man who had been in the leather community for a long time who never met a stranger and who never had a lack of a conversation he could work a room like you've never seen anyone else do and within moments he could have met everybody in the space Chuck somehow or another realized there was a lot of potential in me. I have always been grateful to him for that. And I've always felt that sometimes he valued me more than I even knew I had, at least at that time. So Chuck really introduced me to the local community in Chicago. And I got to meet people like Chuck Renslow, big names who had a defining impact on the community. And Chuck was the one that got me to go to a lot of events. So therefore I was seeing different parts of the community. I was experiencing new things. I was experiencing different communities and meeting wonderful and amazing people. Mm -hmm. I was so fortunate and through Chuck, I met other people who then added on to my mentorship and I have something very important to say to that, and that is two of my defining leather mentors are women Mm. two leather women in addition to chuck really taught me how to be a leather man they taught me to stand up when there was something going on you don't just say nothing and stay in the corner stand up and say something stand up and be counted if somebody's in trouble get up off your kazoo and do something to help They were people who really defined my ideology in the community. And Chuck was instrumental in encouraging me to, to grow in the community in that I needed more than one or two pieces of leather. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and invest in this for yourself. He encouraged me to actually run for my very first title. Mm. And re- and the only title I've ever done. I didn't have a lot of confidence at that time. Didn't think that I had much to offer. Chuck said, uh, I don't agree. I think you do. He was the one who said, go for this, do it. Mm-hmm. So I have him to thank for nudging me in that direction and for telling me, yes, you've got what it takes to do this. And that was a wonderful turning point in my journey in the community.
0: So I I do want to ask you a little bit about that um, experience you had with the competition, but I also do want to know, I mean, with all the mentors that you had coming through, how would you say you changed internally as a person through all of that?
1: Wow. Um, I learned confidence, Mm -hmm. self-confidence. I learned to use my voice. I learned to use my intelligence. I learned to use my, uh, how can I say this, chutzpah, I guess, because I learned to be present and to be part of whatever was going on and not just to be quiet and to be sort of a periphery to the situation, but to jump in and just be part of it and have the confidence and the know-how to do that.
0: I think you you hit on a very big thing is to be present. It's the the self-awareness to be present in a moment. And I think that's so important. I'm a I'm a violinist, uh, a professional violinist, and when I teach my students to play the violin, the first thing I do is to get them to become self-aware, to listen to their own mm. sound. A lot of times, yes. I'll say, "Oh, how did that sound?" And they look at me and they say, th- "I don't know." I'm like, you weren't listening to your own sound. It's amazing to me that we have to be taught to listen to ourselves and to be a- aware of our surroundings and our place in that. Yes, this is me digging deeper probably than I should, but but I no I just, no
1: no, it's fine.
0: I noticed that word present, and that was such a big lesson for you. And I guess I would just love to encourage the people of this generation you know, my generation, of course, to be present in every moment that you can. And that sometimes doesn't include a cell phone. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, yes, yes, because when I was coming into the community, we didn't have those anyway. Mm -hmm. But I will honestly and emphatically say, pay attention to what's going on in the community. There may come a time, probably there will come a time when you're going to have to stand up and be heard and say something and, It may be something positive. It may be something where you've had to correct behavior. I don't know, but that's where being present really comes in. That's when you're observing what's going on around you and how other people are being treated. And that's when there comes a time when you've gotta be that confident person of leather Mm -hmm. and be present and say, no, this isn't uh, something I'm gonna tolerate or wow, this is amazing and thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you feel comfortable telling us the names of the two other mentors that you had besides Chuck?
1: Well, they, they're both alive. I i don't mind saying it. I guess it's okay. Uh, Mistress Joanne Gaddy mm-hmm. and Mistress uh, Lily. Mistress Lily is in Detroit, and Mistress Joanne Gaddy was a very big name in the Chicago community, who is now living down in Florida.
0: Okay. I, I think that's really amazing that you had those experiences with them would you say that your decision to move forward with this contest was like the next step in your journey to like you said just being present
1: I would say in my personal case it was more about learning confidence and value okay the being present was in it was something in progress at that time but when I did that contest that was the first time I realized you're valuable, and you've got something to offer. So that's really how I see that.
0: Now, yeah. at the time, I mean, I'm not sure. I've heard in the past that competitions are different than they were today. But, I mean, did, did you guys work off of, like, having a platform and everything like that? Or a mission statement or anything like that when you're running for a title?
1: I don't recall that that was something that was... Uh, a big part of it. No. Uh, remember I was very new in the community at the time. Mm -hmm. So perhaps what was expected of me and what was expected of some of the other people could have been a bit different, but I do have the distinction of something, I guess I can call it profound that happened during my competition. Uh, Onyx, is a major group in Chicago. And they're very instrumental in, or rather I should say at that time, they were a very instrumental group participating in the cell block. The judges, I believe two of the judges were African American men. Anyway, we had a very young person competing in that, who did not think before speaking. Mm -hmm the question he was asked was what do you feel as a title holder you could do to bridge the gap between uh, men of color and other people in the leather community Mm -hmm. the poor guy stood on that stage and said well i will go to the colored bars and try to become part of the organizations and all this you could literally feel the shock wave go through the entire bar and that was the year i won mr self
0: <laughs> so <laughs> are you saying that you won because he fell flat on his face or?
1: <laughs> no what I, I guess what i'm saying is there, there are people who maybe make better contestants than others
0: uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, uh, what was that feeling like for you when you won that title? Disbelief. Yeah.
1: Uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I, and then my next thought was, well, now what do I do? Mm -hmm. I've won this title. What do I do with it? The bar unfortunately closed within about two months of my win. Oh, really? a long story, but the bar closed. And at that time, Chuck Windemuth and a number of other people in the local Chicago community had started an organization called the Chicago Leather Kennel Club. This group was designed to be able to groom and polish uh, title holders to prepare them for IML or for other title circuit type things. They initially had developed this for Mr. Chicago leather, which was a title that Chuck Windemuth personally rejuvenated that year, 2004. The closing of the bar meant that I was literally left without any uh, support, with no guidance, nothing. Yeah. Chuck Windemuth walked right up to me and said, You're working with us now. Don't worry about it. And he was another one who taught me an amazing lesson. That's when you get up and you just take care of somebody when they need help. Yeah. So with the Kennel Club's assistance, both I and my leather brother title holder here in the city, it was Joey Ariega, and he just welcomed me as a brother, even though this organization had been developed for him. He simply threw his arms out and around me and said, welcome. He and I did IML side by side. He and I prepared side by side. We were the first two title holders from Chicago to both make the top 20 at the same time. Wow. Yeah. It was an amazing honor.
0: Wow. That's incredible. What were some things that you learned in this whole kind of grooming process that made it unique?
1: I think, I don't know how to explain whether or not it was unique, but it's, it, it helped us bring out the best that we had. It helped us focus and it helped us define what was appropriate or inappropriate and what we wanted to do with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I have always felt that that level of mentorship was just more than uh, profoundly valuable. I wish other communities did that with some of their title holders. There are communities that do, don't get me wrong. But so often we see people come through the title holding circuit that really have no uh, support. Mm-hmm. They're, they've won a local title, now they're going on to another. And they don't have that structure and that foundation that I had the luxury of being able to use.
0: Yeah. If you were to speak to you know, newer title holders or future title holders here on this podcast, what would be your message to them?
1: Do it. You will learn more about yourself than you could ever imagine. You will be given challenges to overcome and to manage and to embrace that will make you a better person. Do seek out assistance, ask for help. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And learn how to present yourself with confidence, And I'm even going to say eloquence, because think about what you're going to say and really have something to offer.
0: In other words, be intentional with...
1: Yes, be present, as I said earlier. Mm.
0: Full circle, I love that, be present. Was the leather community at this point for you what you had expected?
1: It was more than I expected. These were people who truly shared their knowledge, People who truly shared their friendship, people who truly shared their kindness, and it just taught me how to do exact to channel even what I had to be able to share with other people. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't expect that. I was truly humbled by it.
0: It sounds to me like your experience was with, with leather, and I don't know. I guess we'll get into your kinks more later, but may or may not have necessarily had to do with the sexualization of leather as much as using leather as a vehicle to bring out the best in yourself.
1: Yes, I would say that's accurate in my case. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk about what you're doing now. We have this platform that you've created over video called Fireside Chats. How did that get started? Where did the idea come from?
1: Well, again, I'm going to bring up the late Chuck <laughs> was such a gregarious and outgoing person that he knew everyone. Chuck never met a stranger Mm -hmm. over the years. He realized that a lot of people in the community had a lot to share. He knew that a lot of the stories needed to be saved. They needed to be recorded and Unfortunately, even at that time, people had died and their information had been lost. So Chuck began talking about doing what he called fireside chats in which someone would sit down and they'd be interviewed live on camera or on stage or whatever, more on stage, I'd say. And he wanted very much to use that as an opening act to the Mr. Chicago leather contest, which happens in January. The first person he wanted interviewed was Mr. Marcus from San Francisco. Now Chuck didn't know how to take the next step with it. So when he and I were at a contest, I said, you know what, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I'll do the, I'll do the interview. He said, okay, give it a try. He was very pleased that I did that because I was showing confidence that he didn't uh, previously see in me. So that's exactly what happened. I prepared the interview with Mr. Marcus and we had him fly into Chicago. He was judging that particular contest, but on the Thursday night, we sat him down at the Leather Archives and Museum and the interview went on for about 90 minutes. I brought up things that the audience, some of them were astounded to hear. Mm-hmm. Some of these people had known him for years, but didn't know that he had previously been married or that he had children. Yeah. So they were wowed by this information. Now, for those who did not know Mr. Marcus, he was a very fascinating individual and he was a very... How can I say? He was sort of the the doorkeeper to all the secrets. Mm-hmm. So I was able to bring up topics with him that... uh he had to sort of whitewash a little bit in order for them to be appropriate for public consumption, right. but the interview was so successful that the initial impetus was, who's next? Who are you interviewing next? Is this something that you're going to be regularly doing? And I hadn't even considered that.
0: This is something so profound for the audience at that point, people were wanting more.
1: Yes. And they, The audience loved it so much that they, as a group, were encouraging me Mm -hmm. to go on and do more of these interviews. That's how it began.
0: Now, at the time where you're like, oh, shit, one more thing. Or were you like excited to do it?
1: (laughs) I, I, I I can't say I was excited as much as I was sort of wowed that they, that they liked it that much, that they wanted me to continue doing this. Mm -hmm. I I walked into the situation assuming it was a one-off. Yeah. I didn't realize I was opening, you know, the door to an amazing journey at this point.
0: Do you still have that recording of Mr. Marcus?
1: I do. It's a long story that I don't really want to get into. But uh, yes, it was recorded. (laughs)
0: Let me ask you this. I mean, out of all of the years now that you've been hosting interviews, I mean, for me, this has been a passion project for me just for the last year, and you've been at it a lot longer. What to you makes this so special, this kind of platform that you have to get to know people?
1: The interviews enable me to focus maybe on a few very important things with people that enable them, in their own words, to record it for history, Mm -hmm. things that may not automatically come to your mind. If you happen to meet someone in passing, but things that if they're specifically asked, they can extrapolate. And I find that these interviews enable people to feel that they're sharing this information in a more safe environment, maybe than they would casually somewhere else. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But I take that responsibility very seriously. If you're willing to tell me very personal information, then I have to have the stuffing to be able to know where to go with that mm-hmm. and how to use it and directionalize it in the interview. You know, recording these interviews is preserving history that I hope future generations will find beneficial.
0: So for you, it's, it's the, the posterity that is important to you the most.
1: Yes, but it's it also honors the subject. Mm-hmm. If someone's asked to do an interview, they feel very honored mm-hmm. that someone's okay. interested in what they have to say. So it's twofold, yes.
0: You don't have to answer all of these questions, but I am curious because I, I've been in the game about a year now and I've experienced so much already in the last year with hosting interviews. Uh, I'm curious to know if if there's first one interview besides Mr. Marcus, who you already mentioned that was particularly impactful for yourself personally?
1: Well, hands down, it would be uh, Roland Jaggard of Operation Spanner. That interview was the watershed for me. Uh, For your audience, I'll explain a little bit about Spanner. In the late 1980s, Uh, Operation Spanner was basically a witch hunt that happened in um, England under Thatcher's administration. In a nutshell, videotapes were discovered that depicted very heavy SM activities that were misconstrued as snuff films. Uh, for, for people who know a little bit of history of England at that time, Margaret Thatcher was cutting anything that she felt was extraneous to government. She was ditching all kinds of programs and whatnot. Well, the police got a hold of this tape. They thought that they had struck gold, and they were going to try to prosecute the men that were involved in these uh, in, in these activities. Well... <sighs> They also had to justify their branch of uh, the police force, which was the Obscene Publications Division, Mm. which was facing the chopping block under Thatcher. So they pursued this as a criminal offense. Now, roughly 16 people were initially prosecuted in this, but three litigants took it on to the higher levels of uh, jurisprudence which led to the European Court of Human uh, Rights in Brussels a couple of years later it went that far up they lost the case at every level because they were not at this point being accused of, uh, of snuffing people or killing people but they were being accused of, of uh, promoting obscene publications at this point huh. so They were fighting for their rights to engage in sadomasochistic activity. Under British law, that was illegal. You could not consent to being physically harmed.
0: Ah, okay.
1: You could consent to a medical procedure, a dental procedure, but you couldn't consent to somebody harming you with sex toys. So... They were fighting for their rights in that respect. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does.
1: In a nutshell, these men were destroyed. They lost lucrative careers. Some of them lost their families, their homes, whatever. Over time, a number of the people died. Some of them have simply disappeared into wherever people go that don't want to be bothered. Well, through a British filmmaker with whom I was minimally acquainted. I got a contact for the last surviving litigant, Roland Jaggard. I approached him for an interview. I asked two different people to go over this email that I was going to send to him. How did they feel about it? Did it need any corrections? Some minor things were done to it, sent it off. Astoundingly he agreed.
0: Oh, my gosh, that must have been so exciting for you.
1: I was beyond honored. I I don't even have vocabulary to depict it. However, it also meant I had to get busy with this project. Yeah, this was this was not an interview. You could simply prepare and, and just go and do this required finesse. This required delicate, delicate handling this required consideration that a lot of people might not require in a situation i had to think about every word i was going to ask this man so that i didn't offend him so that i didn't stray into territory that would be upsetting to him i literally had to walk on ice with all of this so in a nutshell i went to london and spent roughly two days doing this interview I was fortunate in that I had contacts in the UK that could film this for me. I called on every resource I had and these men stepped up. So we went to Roland Jaggard's home in a very regular suburban town near London and spent two days learning everything possible about this and having him tell it all in his own words. I followed through as much as I could and I I captured everything I could. It was a tremendous learning experience for me. It was a tremendous honor and it is the definitive chat in my career thus
0: far. Was there anything that he said in that interview that just like stuck with you?
1: I'm going to again, come back to the principle of know what you're worth, Mm -hmm. know your value. Know your principles and stand on them. He did nothing wrong. None of them did anything wrong. This was a witch hunt. They were being persecuted, but he stood on principle. And although he lost the case, he showed the rest of the BDSM community that you are valuable people who don't have to tolerate mistreatment.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, that gives me chills. Yeah, It's like when I don't even have words for that. That's uh, very special that you had that interview with him.
1: Yes, and and while most of my interviews might be around one hour in length, his is two or three hours, I forgot exactly, but it's in about six or eight parts on YouTube for anyone that would like to go see it. Another reason I was so honored to get the interview with Roland Jaggard and Operation Spanner is because he was choosing to make this his swan song on the topic. He agreed to do this extensive interview, filmed interview with me because he had taken the time to look at a couple of my other chats. He liked how I was handling the people. He liked my courtesy, Toward the people and felt comfortable doing the interview with me but he made very clear this was it he wasn't going to do any more interviews on this topic when he was finished with this he was laying the issue in bed and that was it mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how humbling that was how honoring that was I do know since then he has twice declined further interviews about Operation Spanner.
0: Well, that's, it's so special that you were the one to catch that and to record it.
1: And that he honored me mm-hmm. to enable me to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I'm curious to know, I mean, as a fellow, I guess, podcaster, um, <laughs> recording, you know, talks like this, have you ever run into an instance where you had to decline an interview yourself or remove an interview from your lineup?
1: Actually, I've had both happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I canceled one interview with someone here in Chicago who could not make the time for any of the prep work that I do. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, then I'm not going to do the interview because I do quality work. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to just do it off the cuff. Yeah. So, yes, I've done that. I've had people decline in at the last moment, mm-hmm. and I've done all the prep work and then suddenly don't have an interview to do. That's disappointing. But once we did have to pull an interview off of the YouTube channel, I had done an interview with someone in another country who was part of the rubber community. Mm-hmm. And... He was applying for other jobs in this city in which he lived, but was for some reason disliked by some of the people associated with that company and that job. They searched the internet to find ammunition they could use against him. And of course they found the interview.
0: Wow.
1: That was used against him and it cost him a lot of heartache and a lot of difficulty. the point that he chose to leave the uh, company where he was employed and move on to something else i gather he was going for a promotion within the company was what was happening and a flurry of activity was coming at me fortunately i was able to get a hold of the person that does all of my tech work for me and he was able to remove it but before that actually could be done unfortunately these people managed to copy it. Yeah. And they were still using that information against him. I found that terrible. I found that unconscionable. But yes, unfortunately, his interview had to be taken down.
0: It's so interesting to me, like how in today's... It's 2021, you guys. Like, do we really have to shame people for being sexual beings? Everybody is a sexual being. It's just... It's so crazy know. to me. I know. Uh, but, I mean, he goes back to, to Spanner. I mean, Spanner is the, the, the prime example, that whole situation of yes. standing up. And even though that case was lost, I mean, just the principle of standing up and being true to yourself. But what a battle. I mean.
1: Well, I do know today that the – although – The precedent sits on the books in England. I know that it's rarely, if ever, enforced at this point. But the principle of the fact is it still sits on the books there, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, very lucky in my profession. I work with um, some other people, and I actually had a, a Leather Talk chat that was airing on Here TV for, I think it was Here TV, for Pride and I told one of my coworkers, I said, gosh, I don't know if I should do this because like it's such a big accomplishment, like something that I would love to do. But like, what if people see it on television? And she goes, so they see it on television. Don't be afraid to just to, to do you, to be you. And the people that are watching that channel are probably watching that channel because they're there because they support you anyways. And if right. the people that have a problem with it will have a problem with it. And I was like, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> like, but that's kind of what it comes down to. I mean, how, how long are you going to live your life in the shadows, you know?
1: Right, I agree.
0: There's one thing that Trey Onyx said in his uh, interview a couple weeks ago, actually, uh, Mr. San Francisco Leather 2020. And he said something along the lines of, when are you going to start living your life? Like, when are you going to start living for you and doing you? And as simple as those words are, they're so profound to me. Like, I never thought about it like that. Like, yeah, at some point, every single one of us, you know, gay, straight, you know, whatever you are, has to sit down and have that moment and be like, okay, when are you going to start just being you and yeah. giving no shits?
1: Like, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's enough preaching for Brandon. Um <laughs> 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 So I w- am curious, I do want to get a little more dirty. Is that all right?
1: I'll tell you whatever I can. <laughs> okay.
0: I do want to know, it, what are some of your favorite kinks and fetishes? Do you have any?
1: Well, not that I'd ever divulge any of this. But, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very much into armpits. That oh, okay? That started That started very early on in my journey in the leather community.
0: Like smelling them?
1: Oh, uh, well, I like to lick a good pit, ah,
0: okay. and
1: I tend to get a little bit rough with that. I've also been exploring fisting, although I'm a little old for that. Maybe I am enjoying it.
0: As a top or a bottom? As a, as a bottom, okay.
1: um, yes. And I, I've always been someone who enjoyed the freedom of bar sex and, like, you know, group activities and sex parties and things like that. I've, I've always loved that energy and that uh, freedom to simply be a little bit of a pig and enjoy it.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you a little bit of an exhibitionist? Does that come into play?
1: Perhaps. <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I, I actually do enjoy, uh, as I've said, uh, but, uh, sex in a bar, for example. Or if I'm at a sex club if i'm at a sex party yeah i enjoy it
0: i'm curious to know in your experience of what, what was it like 20 years or something being in the leather scene has that a dynamic of cruising changed over the years
1: uh in my opinion yes i have seen it go from a lot more activity in live action in the bars to most of it going online mm-hmm. I find that that detracts from a lot of the community, and I I think that that's detrimental in a lot of ways. I think it's beneficial if you're in a small town maybe, but if you're in a city and you've got the resources here, go out and support those bars. Be part of that community.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you be willing to share with us one of your kinkiest moments at a bar?
1: Wow, I have to think about that. Um I think the first time I actually was successfully fisted was in not a bar but in a sex club, okay is that okay
0: oh yeah,
1: yeah, and that was fast just fascinating it was fantastic fascinating all at the same time
0: was this wait, so, was this in chicago
1: no it was uh actually in Ottawa Canada oh. <laughs> We yeah. always
0: love a good Canada story.
1: Um, oh, the Canadians. Mm.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's go to your... Let, let me dive deeper into your fisting experience. So as the bottom, was this a uh, a goal of yours? Like, oh, like one day I want to get a fist or it just like happened. I, uh,
1: that's hard to say. I, I think I had just been sort of toying with it. And I think it had been something that was interesting and a little bit fascinating, but I had never really pursued it. Uh-huh. But I happened to be in a situation that lent itself to that and turned out to be a very successful experience. It was really something.
0: So, okay. I, I just have to pick your brain about it because I was listed sure. as well as a bottom for the first time on on like an accident kind of thing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and everyone's always like, every time I tell that story, everyone's like, how do you get fisted on an accident? Well, it's Oops. Easy- <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's easier. It's It happens easier than you would think. But how to like, okay, so <clears throat> you're in a sex club and it, it, he's going like, what, one finger at a time and then one finger becomes two fingers becomes three fingers and at what point do you get past the knuckles and you're like oh my god
1: that's that's hard to say in, in my case it it was just such a combination of circumstances because yes i was very aroused because i was in a sex club and there was a lot of activity going on it was more of a sex party okay that was taking place in a club situation And so that was very sexual, so I was enjoying that. And then uh, it was the first time I had ever experienced with something like that in a sling. So it was a different position for my body and my... um, I, I just relaxed and enjoyed it, and the next thing I knew, he had managed it. Now, he was physically much smaller than me, so he had much smaller hands. Okay and that i think is the key and that's what made it uh actually happen
0: all right awesome so that situation like you said lent itself to that wow yes
1: Mm -hmm.
0: how sexy
1: yes it was (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he wasn't this drop dead hot guy he wasn't um by any stretch of the imagination what you'd think is a hot leather man just a very average looking guy but uh, turned out to be a very sexual experience.
0: So if you're listening now and you, you were that boy, you know you're the, the average looking guy. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> successfully fisted Doug for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I
1: tell you, no complaint. No complaint. Yeah.
0: I love it. I love it. No, I have this fantasy that as soon as I get out of quarantine, like we're all vaccinated and we're like mostly past this and the sex clubs open. Like my fantasy is, and I've never done this. Maybe you have. Is to like blindfold myself, get in a sling, and then just like wait. And just whatever happens in the next four or five hours is whatever happens.
1: Well, of course, that's a fantasy for a lot of us. It truly <laughs> is. I I have even discussed with uh, friends the hope that someday maybe they'll assist me in enabling that to happen.
0: Mm.
1: You know, I'd love it. I would
0: love it. I also have a friend who has these um, these days or these weekends called like a pump and dump and he'll like (laughs) he'll that's what he calls a pump and dump so he'll like leave his door unlocked tell people the code to get in or whatever and then he'll just blindfold himself and like sit in bed with his ass in the air and just get fucked in this time like chunk of time
1: Yes, that's an amazing fantasy, and, uh, you know, I have to admit that that's something I'd love to do. But the problem is, where do you find anybody who'll top?
0: I guess. You, know? I, you have to have a network of, <laughs> some kind of network of sign-up, uh, a genius sign-up or something.
1: <laughs> I, I wish I knew, because all i ever meet are bottoms 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 and then it's like okay what am i supposed to do now
0: that's what they say that 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 all of los angeles is bottoms but (laughs) oh it's that
1: way it's that's the whole world for you it doesn't matter where it's not just there
0: (laughs) oh my god well doug i want to thank you again so much for coming on the show and being so transparent and open with us how can we get connected with you how can we reach out how can we find out more about fireside chats
1: Well, the Fireside Chats do have a Facebook page and it's simply Fireside Chats uh, under the main title, Inside Leather History, a Fireside Chat, which is the correct name for these. But we also have a YouTube channel that enables all the chats, at least most of the chats to be seen. And that's called Fireside Chats with Douglas O'Keefe and my last name is spelled with two Fs, like the painter. That's on YouTube, and then the Fireside Chats Facebook page is available. Uh, I, I don't have a huge media presence, but at least I've got that.
0: All right, awesome, awesome. And I'll make sure to put links to all of that in the descriptions below. Before we go, do you have any last statements you'd like to make to our audience before we wrap up?
1: Well, I'm always looking for great people to interview. I'm able to travel to a large degree, not absolutely, but a lot. So if you've got a great idea, challenge me, bring up someone that you think should be interviewed and we'll talk about it.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, I wanna thank you again for coming on the show. And before we go, you guys, don't forget to check out the very many outreach programs we have available to us here in the Los Angeles area. The Alley Leather COVID-19 Assist, Boulevard Pantry and LELC cares are always. You can get assistance during these trying times of COVID-19. I will of course have links in the description below. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as branded Bullet LA. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And as always,
1: stay safe, stay healthy, stay kinky.